One of my favorite scripture verses of all time is found in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the 43rd chapter. And here's what he says. Forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I want you to imagine for a few moments this morning that you are an unchurched person and you're driving through the community in which you've just moved and you're looking for a church. And that nagging void in your life has been there for a long time. After trying most everything else, you decide you'll try church. Going with a friend might obligate you to continue, so you decide to drop in anonymously. You locate a church in your new neighborhood. You're a little concerned because it appears stuck in time. The last coat of paint and the last additions to the landscape appear to have been done during the Nixon administration. Your guess is that the church was built sometime maybe in the 1940s or 1950s, and the last real care it received took place decades ago. Unlike most unchurched people, you decide you're going to risk a visit. So you cautiously enter the building. There's no one at the door to greet you, only a couple of people by the door of the worship center handing out programs, and they're busy talking to each other and not very aware that this is your first visit to this church. You give a quick look around the lobby looking for the restroom, but you have no idea where that's at. You're grateful that you didn't bring the kids because a passing glance at the nursery gives you suspicions about whether it's safe or clean. Your search for the lit- through the literature rack proves fruitless. The only thing you find there is some very outdated material, nothing to answer some of the most basic questions about this local church. You have a sense that the people in this congregation love God and know each other pretty well. Few speak to you at the beginning, but most just gather with their friends. The service begins with music that's unfamiliar to you, and when the pastor asks members and guests to sign the commitment card, you kind of squirm in your seat, and you try to stay as inconspicuous as possible because you really don't want to put your name on anything. Now, the message is presented sincerely, but the pastor seems to be a lot against a lot of things, and he uses some old phrases you haven't heard since your English literature class in college. You have a difficult time relating to what's being said. You feel that his everyday life is probably rather different than yours and he would not understand the struggles that you're facing. You're kind of relieved when the service is over. You leave wondering if this church really has what you're looking for. You decide you'll try some other churches, and maybe, just maybe, something you'll find something a bit more in your time zone. Now, if, you're, if you've been coming to Redeemer, you may not be able to relate to all of those things, I think we do a pretty good job on most accounts here at Redeemer to welcome uh, new folks into the life of this congregation. But I, over the last uh, number of years, I've been doing a lot of consulting and coaching with other churches and pastors, and believe me, I've been in a lot of churches that this is a perfect description of just how the church operates in so, so many times. This morning, I want to move us into the Old Testament book of Joshua. One of the greatest challenges that spiritual leaders and congregations face is keeping in step with what God's doing today, where he's leading the church into the future. 
in the words of Isaiah, dwelling in the past blocks our vision of the new things God is seeking to do. If the past has been wonderful, then celebrate it and thank God for it. But if the past has been dreadful, grieve it and hope for something better. You can rejoice because of it or you can grieve over it, but there's one option that God never gives us, and that is he never lets us live in the past. I've been a pastor for almost four decades now, and I've studied other leaders with interest, seeking to learn from their experiences. And I've noticed that some leaders start out brilliantly, but reach their peak effectiveness and then kind of coast toward retirement. There are others who may have had an uneventful tenure, but they're always looking for learning opportunities that keep them growing. And instead of being stuck in a rut, lacking purpose and direction, their effectiveness gathers strength as the years go by. As the Old Testament book of Joshua opens, we find a spiritual leader who is at the threshold of significant change. God is about to open a new chapter in the story of his people. Joshua's ability to provide leadership in this new thing God is doing depends on his willingness to perceive the transition that God is bringing about. In the opening two verses of Joshua, God is signaling to his chosen leader that the way things have been in the past will not continue into the future. That first is a change of leadership, and then there's going to be a change of location. Moses is dead. This legendary spiritual giant who guided God's people for so many years is gone. New leadership needed to emerge, and Joshua is that new leader. There would be no more wandering in the wilderness. God's people would cross the Jordan River and take possession of the promised land. It was time to move on. Moses' death in crossing the Jordan River was so much more than a historical event. They signaled the new thing that God was about to do. You see, spiritual people know that life is not a series of random circumstances. Instead, we have the ability to see the hand of God in all the happenings of our life. In the Bible, crossing water is often a signal of change, a signal of new commitment. The story of the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea some years earlier would have been in the mind of heart of every Hebrew, including Joshua. And now God was leading his people across another body of water. Personal and spiritual growth always depends on our ability to see one chapter in our life closing and a new one opening. These transitions come in different forms. It may be a career change. It may be the loss of a relationship. It may be a physical move or a health issue. They are met with either a desperate attempt to preserve the way things have been or the recognition that things never stay the same. What is true for us personally is also true in the life of the church. The ability to perceive the new things that God is doing keeps a movement of God fresh and vital. Ignorance or just rejecting the signals relegates the best days of a congregation to the past. So what are some of the signals in the life of a church that things will not ever be the same again? I'm going to share nine of them with you this morning, and the first one is leadership changes. Like Moses passing the baton to Joshua, so a new chapter in the church's history begins when God provides a new leader. Not all congregations have a desire to embrace the future. Sometimes churches select leadership 
that will implement change, and sometimes they look for people who won't threaten the status quo, who will keep things comfortable, things the same as they've always been. In so many churches across America today, the long-term stability of a congregation is more dependent upon a lay leader or a group of lay people than on the pastor. And sometimes this stability leads to church health. At other times, it lends itself to maintenance and preservation of the past, whether that's healthy or not. In these cases, sometimes a change in leadership can, can, can signal the closing of one chapter and the opening of a new chapter. The second signal is facility changes. This church, this church in particular began in very humble um, facilities, first in two locations in this community, and then in a unified location on this site in around 1970. In 1994, we moved into this beautiful part of the facility and had the largest mortgage we ever had to go with it. At a couple of points in our history before and since that spring uh, 23 years ago, we struggled with a lack of classrooms, with no air conditioning, with a basement in the old white church that was on this property that flooded every time it rained, uh, several other inconveniences. But what moved us forward was that almost everyone believed in the mission and the future of this congregation. And that vision was not distracted by the size of the task or the mortgage that lay ahead of us for what was then uh, not nearly as large a congregation as we have now. And then we opened the doors to this new facility we had just built, and people came, and our attendance increased over 25% the first week. People didn't necessarily know everything we believed, and we made no major changes in our staff. The only difference was that the facility they had watched being constructed along Shavy Road was now completed, and in this growing community, a better facility equaled credibility. And people began to notice us on this corner and to take us seriously. The third signal, breaking through growth barriers. See, as a church grows, it's not only, not only becomes larger, but a church fundamentally changes. Resistance to these changes is the reason why many churches plateau and begin to decline. And like most pastors and people, one of the toughest transitions is to break the 200 attendance barrier. And then the next big barrier is the 400 attendance barrier. And during my first years here, I, I knew almost everyone by name. I knew uh, their families. I knew the names of their kids. But as the church grew, I struggled with my inability to personally minister to everyone, and that began to bother me. I was helped in my struggle by a comment from a dear saint in the congregation who said, Rod, it's more important that people get to know Jesus than it is that they get to know you. Trying to be a chaplain to everyone in the congregation was limiting God by my trying to protect my personal comfort zones. And what I discovered in this growth process is what many church leaders have learned, that a growing church is a constantly changing church. A large church is not just an overgrown small church. Its life is governed by a fundamentally different set of principles. Here's the fourth key. Community changes. Not only do churches change, but communities do as well. Communities like ours are impacted by demographic changes, by 
employment changes as well as the shift that this community went through from being a rural community to a suburban life. And all of that alters a congregation's ministry and outreach. It means that a church will be challenged constantly to keep up, to meet the different social and spiritual needs of a changing population. The local church will also have to learn to broaden its ministry to, uh, to include a wide variety of people. These are but a few of the transition times that churches today are facing, and some transitions are the result of conscious decisions that a church has made, such as going to multiple services or adjusting worship styles or providing pastoral care through small groups, and others are the result of factors beyond the control of church leaders. Like Joshua, we must adjust to the realities of the external conditions over which we have little or no control. Here's the fifth signal, sensing the loss. There's a myth that keeps many people from changing and many spiritual leaders from taking action when God prompts them to do that. And the myth is this, if it's God's will, everyone will feel good about it. In reality, the first feeling that comes with most substantial transitions or change is a sense of loss and a tendency to resist that change. In fact, scholars who study change dynamics have concluded that if there's no sense of loss there's no, and no resistance, there's probably been no real change. For every time a chapter in a person's life or a church's life closes, there's a grief process that takes place. The sixth signal is loss of identity. Joshua had been known for years as Moses' right hand, his assistant, his aide. Now Moses was gone. Joshua's relationship with Moses had given him his identity. And like many people, what defined him included the role that he held. But his relationship with Moses was much more than a formal relationship. Moses had been his spiritual director, his mentor. And they shared many significant spiritual moments together. They had fought battles together. Joshua had been trusted by Moses with a special assignment to spy out the promised land. And Joshua had defended Moses' right to lead the people of Israel and to speak for God. There would be no one else who would ever be like Moses. The seventh key is loss of the familiar. One of the first assignments as the leader of Israel was to cross the Jordan River into the land that God was about to give them. They were about to fulfill the dream that God had given them decades earlier. They were leaving the only way of life they had ever known. You see, this generation had grown up in the desert. That was their home, and now there was new territory, promised land ahead of them. This generation had not experienced a movement of God firsthand. They had, they had a secondhand faith. And 40 years of remembering the good old days in Egypt. God's people's lives had centered around their own needs for a long time. They expected God to feed them with manna from heaven, which he did, and then they complained about it when it came. When their needs were not met, this cons their consumer mentality led them to whine to each other and to question the authority of their leaders, including Joshua and Moses. They were stuck in a rut. They were focused on their own needs. And that's a description that is fitting for for more than half the churches in existence today. You see, the Israelites had grown comfortable. 
with their familiar surroundings. They wanted guarantees that Joshua could not give them. They wanted to know exactly what this new land was like. They wanted to know what they would have to eat there and what was expected of them. They, they, these were questions that Joshua couldn't answer. And they didn't have faith to move beyond what was familiar. Taking hold of the future means letting go of the past. There's a certain amount of grieving time anytime God brings about change in the life in our life as a person or the life of a church. And the process usually involves some denial, the unwillingness to see the need for the change. It involves discomfort, the resistance to change. It involves discovery, openness to explore the future, and maybe finally devotion, commitment to a new vision. Change, even when it's God's will, is a process. Not everyone will feel good about it. But God persists in the process until we adjust to his plans for us. And I've discovered over the years that a hesitancy to embrace the future is not always a sign that people are not spiritual. It's a sign that we're human and that change means the loss of the way things are in order to prepare for the way things God wants them to be. Here's number eight, preparing to move on. Joshua chapter one, verse two says, now then you and all these people get ready. See, as Joshua closes one chapter of Israel's history and begins to prepare for the transition into the next, Joshua is reminded to not forget the lessons of the past, but prepare to move beyond past experiences and patterns. Joshua now had to learn some new skills in addition to grieving for his friend Moses. His people were no longer wandering nomads, but now would need to be a conquering army. They had one foot in history while stepping with the other foot into new opportunity. One chapter in our lives rarely closes before the next chapter opens. So we straddle, sometimes awkwardly, both experiences. Sometimes congregations find it difficult to see eye to eye on all the changes that take place. And we talk about not all being on the same page, don't we? In reality, I've met with a lot of congregations that are not, o- not only not on the same page, they're not in, in the same chapter. We get emotionally invested in certain aspects of the church's life or ministry, and we all react a little differently. Let me share with you three things quickly that I've learned over the years about churches and change. And first, I realize that everyone processes change at their own speed. Some people gain a sense of security from the past. Others are continually pursuing that next big challenge. Some latch on to the big picture, while others are interested only in the next step. Some people are in change overload at work or at home, and so they come to church and defend the way things are so that they believe the church is that secure place in a changing world that should not change. Just understanding these differences and how we process change will hopefully create some freedom for each of us to make transitions that we need to make even in our own life. Secondly, I understand that while we have the right to process change at our own pace, we don't have the right to stop the process. Sometimes we have to move beyond the way things have been, always, uh, always have been in order to pursue the way God wants them to be. Transition times tend to either make us or break us. If we get stuck in harboring anger or bitterness, we're going to miss out on God's grace. Prolonged pity parties drain a person of the strength and the vision to pursue the future work that God desires to do in our life. So a choice must be made 
to move on. Feelings need to be acknowledged, but not enthroned. Joshua must have felt that Moses' death couldn't have come at a worse time. But he was certain that God expected him to move these people across the Jordan River and into the land that they were promised. And then third, I know that a vertical focus is absolutely necessary. We must keep an eye on what's happening to us and the other eye on what God is doing. Getting ready to move with God means that we have to listen to him and know not only what he has done for us in, in the past, but have the faith to know that he will care for us in the future. And here's the last signal, anticipating the future. God begins his conversation with Joshua by looking back at Moses' death. And he continues it by sharing with him what, he needs, what needs to take place now. He continu- uh, then God shifts the focus to the future. Prepare to enter the land that I'm about to give you and start anticipating what is yet to come. See, anticipating the future does not mean rejecting the past, but learning from it so that we can move forward. One of the great joys that God gives us is anticipation. The Christian life is one of anticipation. We look forward to God answering our prayers. We seek to discover God's will for our life, knowing that our stewardship of time and abilities and money has eternal consequences. See, by faith we believe that all the injustices of human existence will eventually be addressed by God and that eternity will reveal the reward of faithful service to our Heavenly Father. We know that the final reality of heaven will exceed all of our anticipation of that place that God has prepared for those who love him. But anticipating our final destination is sometimes easier than anticipating the next step that God has for us as we journey with him in the present. Why? Because like Joshua, we know that there's going to be some thresholds of commitment that we have to cross. There's going to be some battles that need to be waged. There's going to be some comfort zones that get stretched, and God will do his part, but he expects us to obediently complete our part. Now, to be honest with you, I don't totally uh, know what the next chapter is that God has in store for us here at Redeemer. But I do know that there will be a new chapter, and what keeps me and the staff and our leadership team going is the anticipation of what is going to be. We live in a time of great change that creates opportunities for greater dependence on God and greater openness to God's plan for us. Spiritual leaders and churches also need to be welcoming these changes, anticipating the blessing of experiencing firsthand a participation in a movement of God. I know that God has opened the door for us here at Redeemer in just in the last six months to year for many new things to begin happening, for new insights, new opportunities out there in our future. I'm going to be sharing some of those with you as, throughout this series, but I'm convinced that we are a congregation that God has continually blessed and put his hand upon in this community to make a difference. And we're doing that, and we'll continue to do that and, um, and, and, and as we trust God uh, into the next steps that, where he leads us. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that within it there are many promises that will bring us success and your best in our life, and I ask that you would just lead us through this great story of Joshua's life. 
Open our minds to receive your words and grant us the grace to be obedient to you in any way that we need to be. Grant a, give us a willing spirit to follow your instructions. God, make us skillful and visionary people. We know that we won't win all the battles we face in life in our own strength, but we ask that for your skill and wisdom to make the right decisions. And by your Holy Spirit, guide us to be in the right place at the right time. Make us diligent in all the areas of our life. Open the doors of opportunity for us so that we may walk through them. Give us a spirit of excellence so that we may do well all that you've committed for us to do. And grant us success this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.